there is tumult in the world, Jesus Christ is still Lord. You are tuned in to Ignite Radio Live. Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter, and we are so blessed to be together. Join us to go more deeply into this great adventure at ilovemyfamily.us. The main buffet, the main buffet, the main item, the main, <laughs> main course, course, the entree, <laughs> is doing this Live It Gathering Guide. What is that? It's a very easy, fun, simple way to bring your family together, to get to know God alive in each other much more fully. Brief commercial before we get to our amazing guest. We want to highlight Catholic business leaders who just give great witness to the highest standards of professional excellence and building the kingdom. And uh, we just want to you, our listeners, to hear about them and to read more about them and look them up at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. These guys are amazing when you're looking for people that you can trust and know that there's integrity there. And again, also about the mission in their businesses about building the kingdom, which is most important. So we just want to shout out and highlight and give thanks to these uh, wonderful businesses. We ask you to support them as they do support us in our ministry. All-in-one payroll, Sherry Glenneman. Archibald Furniture Company, Pat and Patty McNamara. Becoming Gift, Andrew Reinhardt. Carruth Studio, Terry Langendurfer. Cronin Auto Family, Rich and Connie Cronin. Danbury Realtors, Tina Weisenberger. Endlish Environmental and Energy, Tammy Endlish. Imago Day Video Productions, Greg Schleter. Interstate Commercial Glass, Walt Erickson. Isabel Financial Services, Dennis Isabel. MFC Products, Miller Fastener and Component. Paul Miller. Resourcement, Jeff Barefoot. SJS Investment Services, Kevin Kelly. Turning Point Chiropractic, Drs. Jeff and Rachel Elmore. Walker Family Funeral Homes and Crematory, Ryan Hobbs. Again, please support these wonderful Catholic business owners, massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. And we do encourage you to join us on the third Thursdays of every month. Mark your calendar for Belief and Beverage Nights. Register now. There's a limitation to only 100. Massimpact.us forward slash BNB. With no further ado, we turn to our guest for tonight's program. So excited to have Dr. Dwight Lindley from Hillsdale College. How are you doing today, Dr. Lindley? Great. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Greg. Fabulous. So, folks, as you may know, our four-month series for our Belief in Beverage Nights is Incarnation. Of course, a play on the nation part of Incarnation. Reflections on reviving one nation under God. And Dr. Dwight Lindley is our third guest. Um, we lament that we weren't able to do this live. It's the first time because there is a very significant pro-life event, and they've combined usually two nights, and many of you wonderful people are part of those evenings, and some of you begged us not wanting to miss this or choose, but between the two, we had the benefit of being able to uh, have Dr. Lindley here address his theme, which is the center of civilization, marriage in the Homeric epics. So very fascinating, and I know it's going to be edifying to us. But that's what we've got going tonight. Usually we uh, um, record those evenings, and we're blessed that Dr. Lindley generously, graciously, magnanimously uh, is allowing us to do this with the radio. So thank you again. 
So, Dr. Lindley, we love to proclaim the scripture, Revelations 12, 11. They defeated the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. Of course, as Catholics, we are blessed by the Holy Mass and by the mm-hmm. word of their testimony. So tonight, we know you're going to give us this incredible talk and the interaction a little bit, but... We would love to hear your background story briefly, just where you came from, what brought you to this point, wherever you want to go with that. But we believe sure, the Lord's sure. grace in, in just sharing our story like that. So, Be- Before we do that, sure. though, just want to proclaim that the beauty of this faith is, is that it is not simply ethereal, esoteric up there in the clouds. It is incarnate in man and woman, husband and wife. He made them male and female and family. It is lived. It is experienced. And God desires to, for us to touch him and connect with him through the sacramental existence. All that to say, we are very blessed at numerous times when we are in Hillsdale with our children at St. Anthony's Church there, which is absolutely an amazing Catholic experience. Um, and at anywhere the Eucharist is, yes, but it's a special community. The Lindley clan is quite often in front of us, and we are blessed to see, uh, if you will, the Trinitary, the Trinity alive and present through them. So thank you for your witness yeah, there. We even have a multiple of three for our children. We have Nine, nine children. That's great. <laughs> so Talk about Trinitarian. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So just because of the sheer quantity, there's a, there's a fair chance you'll be sitting behind us. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I have to ask you the question, since you did bring that up on sort of a folks, you know, we are blessed with six children. And when they were younger, we learned to strategically place ourselves. Uh, so there'd be two on each end. Steph and I would, would have two between us so that we had a little bit of more proximity. And then obviously, as they're older now, we get to sit together and whatever. Have you guys done any of that? Have you strategically planned your mass sitting? Yeah, I would say it's always changing. It's it's flexible, and you have to kind of be do different things and try what works. Um, we, as our older children, I mean, as our children have gotten older, of course, we we have a, a better zone defense. And, yes, and, <laughs> and spread spread out and have some other people in the middle. But then we also just have a tremendous number of boys we have eight boys and one mm. girl and so a lot of them <laughs> so a lot of the older boys will be serving mass um half the time right. and so it's just always changing really um and uh and and there w- my wife or i will take turns sometimes sitting in a different place or walking around with a baby you know in the back somewhere so that it's not too distracting um that's great. And I would just say it's just, frankly, always changing. Right. <laughs> uh, so it keeps us on our toes. I have to share a quick story. I'm one of 12, Dr. Lindley, and um, oh, okay. I'm 11th out of 12. We have nine boys and three girls. But uh, apparently, as uh, our family was growing, it, we took up the full long pew in our parish back in Erie, PA. <laughs> and then it was harder to keep some of the older ones um uh, I don't want it, focused because they really didn't have proximity of the parental eyeball or whatever. And so oh, sure. apparently my parents got wiser and divided it up into two pews so mm. they could sit with the younger ones behind the older ones <laughs> to keep them oh, in line smart. also. But anyway, I digress. So how's that for a crazy folksy intro to the original question? <laughs> I think it's nevertheless going to be a uh an appropriate intro because I do want to talk about marriage and family in the time of crisis. And, yes. um, I think 
Well, the stage think, is yours. Uh, Tell us your story, your background story, and then just give you permission to dive oh, into sure, the theme. Sure. Um, well, I'm from Texas mostly growing up, and I grew up Protestant. Um, I came into the church in college and um, then went to graduate school, University of Dallas in Texas, mm. and then I uh, got a degree in English, but um, also studied philosophy and theology down there, and and then came to came to teach here at Hilldale in 2011, and has so been here the last 10 years, and um, have been raising our family, and uh, yeah, lo- loving it. I'm teaching, I teach Homer every year um, in the spring as part of the core curriculum here, Great Books core curriculum at Hilldale. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is part of why I've just gotten, you know, repeated opportunities to think about Homer and um, and trying to talk with him, talk talk with uh, freshmen, college freshmen about him, who may not be particularly interested in English. Um, I've discovered there are a lot of inroads and a lot of relevance um, to, to daily life and to contemporary life, regardless of you know, how interested you are mm. in ancient history and, and all of the things. So that's some background. That's fabulous. And of course, we are uh, often speaking of the likes of Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis, mm. of course. And uh, is it not fair to say that uh, a lot of those conventions, archetypes, cosmology, impersonal dynamics, interplay, the transcendence and all of that find its find their roots in the likes oh, of yeah. Homer? Oh, very much so. Um, they, <clears throat> they all. I mean, many of those uh, latter-day epics that we that we love from Tolkien and others have um, these quest narratives and um, homecoming narratives where you're, you're you know you've been away and you have to come back home and it's a great struggle. All of those kinds of things have their roots in Homer. That's that's amazing. Uh, at, least, at least a lot of their roots. That's amazing, and I, I, I feel like we could talk for hours, and I, I need to curtail myself, hold myself back from all kinds of questions. But I do need to say, with the reemergence of the Star Wars myth, uh, of course, Lucas was very taken by Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces book, I think, which kind of describes this. And we often, as a couple, try to communicate the fact that um, uh, every movie, every drama, every every story we're told has these fundamental elements. You find yourself point That's A right. protagonist. They go through the struggle, the crucible point B, uh, they come out on the other side more fully aware of their identity and mission, and we often like to punctuate if we gave names to those life, death, resurrection, and we might say Pentecost, that the very nature, the Mm. fabric of every human drama are these movements that are the very fabric of Christ in whom we find our identity. Anyways, um, you're an expert at all that stuff, so uh, please um, share with us your theme for tonight, and we may interact. We'll try to. I'll try to curtail because I just really want to absorb what you have to share with us. Sure, what you prepared? Sure. sure. Well, as I said, what I what I'd like to talk about for a little bit <clears throat> is the Homeric epics, which are about the fall of Troy, uh, the end of the Trojan War, mm. which is you know we're talking about thirty two hundred years ago when this happened, twelve hundred BC. And the reason I wanted to talk about it, the reason I jumped at this opportunity when you first got in touch with me, Greg, was that I've just come to see how much um, clarity 
this very these very old stories have for understanding a lot of things, but especially today I wanted to focus on <clears throat> marriage as the center, the core of civilization, mm. and how. And I just think there's a lot of insight and relevance and wisdom that we can get get from it. <clears throat> um, I even sort of think of it like a mirror in which we can see ourselves if we if we learn how to do it and if we think well. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, that's even more the case and more you know more crucially the case in in scripture. We're meant to see our own lives and where we where we've come from, where we're going, what the problems are, what the opportunities and who we're meant to be and all of that. But I think you also get that to a lesser extent and in different ways in other great texts. And, and so that's kind of the way I read Homer. Mm. Um, so just a bit, <clears throat> the, the basic idea is that the Trojan War, which happened, as I said, 1,200 years ago, and it's the end of the, the Bronze Age and Mycenaean civilization. We could talk about it historically. But in, inside the books of Homer... The main dynamic is it's the end of a it's the end of a civilization because these two peoples have <clears throat> gone to war and basically destroyed each other, and they've been at war for years when the first epic, the Iliad, starts, and they're just in this really ruinous state, um, both <laughs> both at war among the men who are there and also back at home where the women and children and the, and the elderly are all, um, are all living and have been living for years without, without men, mm-hmm. without the, the fathers and husbands of these families. <clears throat> so you have a kind of double destruction. The men are killing themselves in one place for, for several years uh, at the Trojan War, and then the families on the other side are also dying mm-hmm. because they, they've uh, had the men away and, and also dying. And, uh, and so like one of the, one of the big insights I think is that when you put, um, when you, when you separate the families like this, <clears throat> that the civilization itself suffers, um, unto death. Mm-hmm. And so you, the first epic you have, it's the end of the war the Iliad, and then the second epic, the Odyssey, is about the return of one of these fighters, Odysseus, to his home and to his family. And and so there's this kind of struggle in that second book to get back to where he belongs and to where uh, he can actually have a flourishing life. <clears throat> and so just wanted to say a few things about each book that I think bring out um, the dynamics and kind of the importance of marriage. And I'll try to, along the way, show how this really has some uh, interesting perspectives that we can give us on our own day. Wonderful um, setting. So so <clears throat> the first thought about the Iliad, the, the, the war side of this, um, at, towards the end of it, Achilles, the main character, um, gets a new shield, which is made by a metalworker god named Hephaestus, and he gets this shield that has all these carvings in the front of it, um, sort of like, you know, like a- ancient artwork carved in, in, in kind of a base relief almost on the front of the shield. And the big thing that's on there, which is of our interest for us, is there are two cities, and there's a, one of them is a city of peace and the other is a city of war. And so the interesting thing about this is it shows 
what Homer thinks a, a kind of peace, peaceful civilization and a warlike civilization are all about. And in that peaceful city on the front of this shield, this piece of art, um, there is marriage and love mm. uh, are at the heart of it. There's a wedding taking place in this city. Mm. And, and all of these institutions, you have law courts and, and, um, you have law courts and, and justice and, um, incentives for, for doing the right thing. And, and all these things, also music and dancing, all, all of the, all of these good things that people care about, but they're all clustered around the possibility of men and women falling in love and having a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the joyous occasion of that, which is, it's a delicate thing. Uh, it takes all of these structural supports, you know, um, in, or, in order to make that possible. And that's kind of the core of the, of what a peaceful, well-functioning city that's in accord with nature, the way things are meant to be. Mm. Um, and then on the other side of the shield, there's the city of war where you have <clears throat> two people, at, you know, two peoples who are at war, and the men are all fighting, and they're separated from their families. The families are broken, and the men are killing each other and betraying each other, mm-hmm. and they sort of are reduced to a more animal-like state. And uh, it's just brutal and 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 sad and tragic. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but you know the fundamental thing is the marriages are broken and the children are without fathers and so on. And so um, again. <clears throat> He's got these two cities, two civilizations, two uh, two places um, for marriage in each one, and and what you take away from this scene is just that the Iliad and the Trojan War is that city of war, <laughs> and it's a it's a civilization that has um, broken itself by tearing apart its its marriages, and the irony of that is that. Is that uh, the war started because um, Paris, the Trojan prince, takes um, Menelaus takes one of the Greek uh, kings' wives and runs off with her, Helen of Troy. Mm. They run off to, to Troy. The Greeks all come after them, and that's the beginning of the Trojan War. Um, but then, while they're there, they've been there for nine years by the time the Iliad starts. While they're there, they're taking. Um, how, how do they stay alive? They have to loot and pillage. Well, they, I don't know if they have to, but they mm. do loot and pillage the countryside surrounding so they can, because they have no crops of their own there. They have no farms. Um, so they take other people's things and they enslave um, other people, especially women from that surrounding countryside. And so what you have is... Um, this man camp in front of Troy of these Greeks who came to to war to right a, a, wrong, a marital wrong and bring back and kind of heal this family that has had a a, a woman, you yeah. know, a wife uh, taken. But while they're there, they actually end up doing the same thing. Mm. They end up taking other people's wives and daughters, enslaving them. And so... After after some years of this, they are complicit in the same crime or sin that that uh, that that started this thing. They're just they're um, just as poisoned as um, the, the ones that they're opposing. 
So you have both sides that are have, have this basic sickness where they're they're breaking up other people's marriages. They're also away from their their wives and and uh, their own marriages and families are suffering. And um, there are a few key scenes where you see this, <clears throat> um, but but I think one of the most kind of uh, one of the uh, most striking is, is from in a tr- in the case of a Trojan hero named Hector. Um, who's Paris's brother? He's the great hero of the Trojans, and his wife at one point, whose name is Andromache. This is in Book Six of uh, of of the Iliad. She tries to persuade him to come out, uh, to come back, and to play defense, basically, mm. to to be more conservative. And and hey, can you just stay closer to the wall and keep our armies closer to the wall? so that you have a chance of living and we have a chance of reuniting our family mm. and so that this doesn't end in just utter ruin. Because Hector has been taking the Trojan army all the way over to the Greek camp and winning great glory, but he's in danger of being killed. Mm. Well, the the long and short of it is he can't hear her plea, even though it's a really good one. Um, she's just saying, of course you have to fight. But remember that our family and and the kind of integrity of our civilization of our people is also at stake here, and this is a good. And don't just try to 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 win and do the most awesome things. Mm. Uh, but remember us. He feels that pull and loves his wife, and it's very a uh, pathetic scene in the sense of pathos, right? Mm. But um, but he can't resist the pull to to do glorious things and to just stick it to the other side. <laughs> and so he's drawn out drawn away and ends up getting killed and that's the end of the Trojan mm-hmm. side. Like that's they lose when he loses. And and um and so you have this great pathos of <clears throat> this all, all these men who are in an unnatural state, living away from their wives, enslaving other people's wives and daughters and just ruining one another and themselves. And uh, there's a pull back to the way things should be, but it's so hard to, to see that and to do that when you're in the midst of a time of strife mm-hmm. and struggle. Um, and I often, when I'm th- reading this, uh, kind of refer to, refer my students to, you know, all of the struggles and wars of our own time, <laughs> many of which are more are 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 online and they're kind of culture wars mm-hmm. and um, struggles. I I also think we have we tend to have a kind of a really sick way of treating women, especially mm-hmm. in our in our culture. Um, so that's kind of the first half of of the Homeric cycle that that really sets up the problem. That uh, we got a bunch of sick men who don't know, don't know how to stop doing what they're doing, Mm. uh, even though it's tearing them apart. Um, So, and and that kind of sets up the second half. Go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I just said great summary. Thank you. Keep going. Yeah, of course. So, so it sets up the second half of the drama where one of these poor guys, now that they've won. It's very much a Pyrrhic victory, though, you know. They've lost, uh, they've lost just an incredible number of men, and, um, and it's taken, you know, years and years to, to win this war. 
they come back with with glory and gold and everything, um, but they are really beat down. And, and the the biggest problem is that they have changed. They have become something less than who they're meant to be mm. over this process because you know how it is. We all know how it is as parents. Habits form people mm-hmm. and make us who we are. You know, you kind of are what your habits are. Mm-hmm. And and uh, these men have formed these habits of, of uh, using people and taking what they want by force. Um, and this is another area in which I think we have a really uh, sort of sick a kind of sick way of of that men in this culture, our culture today, have a have a sick way of of treating women. Is that mm-hmm. we were so many of us are habituated to using them mm-hmm. um, for sexual pleasure on, online. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but anyway, so we have all these guys in the Trojan War. They're all habituated to that kind of thing too, um, and. And so part of the reason that it takes Odysseus and others in the Trojan War so so long to get home is that they have all these bad habits that are getting them in trouble on the way. Mm-hmm. And um, Odysseus gets picks a bunch of fights, and he gets caught up with a few women on the way home because that's what he's been doing for years. Mm-hmm. He's kind of been denatured a little bit and made... Um, reduced and made less of a man than he's meant to be. Um, and so so the story of the Odyssey is his, the twists and turns of his story is he is trying to get back home, but really is, tr- is actually struggling to become the man again that he needs to be mm-hmm. in order to get home, in order to play the role that he needs to be as husband, father, the king, and leader of his people. Okay, so, so just a couple of anecdotes, uh, vignettes from the Odyssey, and as we're thinking about this, we can think about our own culture, I think, because we have a really sick, strife-ridden culture where we have habits of of uh, using women and broken families all over the place, mm. as we know. Um, when we're thinking about the Odyssey, part, part of what I think we can think about is what is the path back to our own, uh, the healing of our own civilization, That's our great. own families, our own... Um, our own countless broken men who are sick and know that they're sick but don't know how to get back. Mm. <clears throat> um, okay, so the Odyssey opens with, <laughs> it's interesting, it doesn't open with Odysseus you know, on the boat sailing back. It opens with a view of his family back home, his wife whose name is Penelope mm. and his son whose name is Telemachus. Telemachus is a late teens, maybe 20-year-old guy who has grown up without a father because his father took 10 years away at war, and he's taken several more years on the way home because he's gotten in so so many messes um, and gotten stuck various places because of who he is and his bad habits. So you've got a son without a father who doesn't know what it means to be a man, and then you have a wife without any support, without any help, um, taking care of their, their house, obviously their son, but also ruling. She, uh, she has no help governing the, the, uh, the, the, the island where they live, which is Ithaca, hmm. off the mainland of Greece. Anyway, so you have this broken situation, and also the last detail there is you have a bunch of young men 
who in, in the Odyssey are called the suitors because they're, they're all trying to win Penelope's hand because they mm-hmm. think Odysseus is dead. The interesting thing about these guys is if Telemachus, if Penelope and Odysseus are about 40 and Telemachus is about 20, you know, they conceived him right before Odysseus went and left for war. Mm-hmm. Well, the suitors who are pursuing her are about 30. Mm-hmm. They're in between, uh, which means that they were too young. They were the young boys who were too young to go to war. Um, so they, but, but you know what? All of their fathers did. <laughs> so they're a bunch of ill-bred young guys who have grown up without, uh, without fathers, and they don't know how to live well. They don't know how to treat women. They don't know how to, how to pursue justice with, with their lives. And and so they're just making a mess of Ithaca and 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 treating Penelope and Telemachus unjustly and using them. So what what I'm saying is you have a bro- an image of a broken culture, culture. and society yeah. back home, and it's broken because these men have been gone. Mm. So this is the flip side, the underside of of the Trojan War is the suffering caused by this. This decade-long, actually, by the time Odysseus gets back, two-decade-long absence, um, <clears throat> which is just as much the way a culture dies um, as the other. So let me let me say just two more things, and then um, we can we can uh, talk a little bit more. Um, Great about about this, but just so so one one story about Odysseus on the way home. Famously, he gets caught with a goddess um, whose name is Calypso. And this is, in Homer, as Homer describes it, it is sort of like a, a stock male, like sinful fantasy of, of men, mm. um, where he gets, he washes up on this island where there is an immortal goddess who will never get old, and she's beautiful and basically wants to make him her husband. And uh, they, they, uh, and, and everything is there. He, like all of the, they have all the food they need without, you know, just grows naturally without needing to be taken care of. And he's he's there for a few years actually. Um, and at first he's kind of enjoying it for kind of you know understandable but base reasons. Um, and. And yet he becomes more and more miserable. And by the time we find him, this is in book five of the Odyssey, he's weeping on the beach every day. Mm. And this this goddess who is trying to make him her, she says, I'll make you immortal and you can stay here and be my husband. And he just wants to get home. Mm. Well, the interesting thing about this and the thing that I think can really be food for thought and and um, and help us think about our own troubles today is why does he why is he not happy uh this is what homer kind of uh nudges us towards is it makes us think about why do you have this um this manly man on an island with essentially a tropical island sex goddess i mean <laughs> who you know in everything you 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 quote quote unquote everything you you could want um I, you know, with scare quotes, of course, <clears throat> everything that in a certain sinful consciousness a person might think he would want, he's grievously unhappy. Mm. Why? 
the so so it really comes out when Calypso, the goddess, when, uh, basically another guy comes and says another goddess god comes and says Odysseus needs to go home, and she says, but I want him to stay here, and well let's give him the choice. Well he wants to go home. When she's trying to argue with him to stay there, even though he now he can leave, he says. Uh, she says, "Listen, I am better looking than your than your wife. Your <laughs> wife is age is aging. You have a forty year old wife, mm. and I and I am immortal. I'm always going to look like this." <laughs> and Odysseus looks at her and says, "Okay, you're right, but I was I still want to go back to my wife." Mm. And and uh, he admits all of that and still wants a wife um, who, like him, has some skin in the game. And it's actually getting older. Pardon the pun. And so, so, right? No, exactly. It's actually <laughs> the skin, um, right? Which which changes on us as we as we move through life. And so, the mystery here, and I think the really deep insight is, we think, you know, and I say we. I think this is especially true of men. It can be true of women too, in different ways, in um, different degrees. But we think we want to escape time. And we think we want to have um, a kind of <clears throat> uh, a love, a lover that has no um, that w- where there's no strings attached, where we have nothing to lose, and we can just uh, enjoy the pleasure of the other and the other's beauty um, without any without any worries and problems of relationship. Um, that's kind of the way we relate to porn. <laughs> mm. Okay. It's all outside of time. It's an unchanging. It's a person with an unchanging body and and no strings attached and no responsibilities. That seems like what we want, but it is actually really unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, as everyone knows, um, at a certain point. But on the front end, like that seems really unlikely. We actually, uh, what Homer knows and shows us in this story is that. What we really want is somebody who can be a companion through history, through time, who actually can has a drama, uh, who can uh, has ups and downs, and who has something at stake in life. And uh, we need somebody like that as a companion mm. and as a lover too, um, to to be a kind of appropriate, fitting companion um, for for life. And, you know, we would rather have somebody who, who also, like us, is, is getting older and who is not going to live forever, right? Because death focuses the mind and it makes us, reminds us what's important. And we have a limited amount of time to try to, um, to make our life what it can be, mm-hmm. what, it, what, we're, what, it's, what we're called to make it. You know, so I just think it's a really, uh, I think it's a really insightful picture of, this basic contrast between mm-hmm. what we and especially kind of uh, sinful men think that they want and then what actually we need, um, which is, of course, you know, permanent mm-hmm. <laughs> companion, uh, companionship of marriage with, um, with somebody who actually um, has skin in the game, as I said. That's amazing. Oh, so beautiful. 
Fabulous presentation, and I know so much more to go and depths to pine and that sort of thing, but just in insights and obviously any of us paying attention, seeing the likes mm-hmm. of Antifa, Black Lives Matter, policies coming out of Washington or other places, really the byline of that is portrait of a fatherless society. And you're you're really raising those fundamental themes and recognizing, you know, there, there is an order, as, as the great producer Cecil B. DeMille said, you really can't break this moral law. We can only break ourselves mm-hmm. against it. Timeless. I mean, that that is the story that there's a moral landscape. I want to get your insights, particularly as a professor in English, where I think the conventions of deconstructionism and such came out of it. And just for our audience, that, that we see the emergence um, in the battle. The story of Homer begs the question, well, what is a father? What is a family? What does it mean to love? And you've identified some of those attributes, but don't we see now sort of a a confusion assailing the very premise that they need, which is objective truth? Well, what is a woman? Well, what is marriage? Well, what is a man? So how do we understand that through the lens of Homer, maybe? And then how maybe in your insight as a father, as a professor and a campus with kids working this out, how do we sort of combat it and set the stage for victory? That's a great question. And obviously... An enormous question. Yeah. Which, you know, I was to, trying to hold him back, Dr. Lindley, but he wasn't paying attention. I'm known to be a fire hose. <laughs> no, that, I was, I'm, glad, I'm glad you stopped asking the question, Greg, because it was just getting bigger and bigger. As we were but, but you know, okay, so first about Homer and then about life, um, my own life and, and experience. I mean, I think one of the some of the key insights of Homer is that you, we can get into these artificial headspaces where um, we're just <clears throat> struggling to to uh, we're struggling to kind of maximize our pleasure and competing with people and um, and this is a lot of what social media um, online life is like today, where people get into these highly artificial situations where they think you know this is what Twitter is like. It's just um, people are striving with each other for dominance mm. Um, mm. to 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 win and and score points against the other side and get get all of the gotchas and 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 to weaponize everything and you know go through people's past histories and out them and um, and people do this on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, this is just kind of the way our online culture is right now. It's part of why our political culture can be so toxic sometimes. Mm. But what I'm trying to, trying to work towards here is when you're in that kind of environment where everything is about dominating the other side by whatever means, um, <clears throat> you can come to justify all kinds of things, you know? Um, you can justify throwing, like being utterly cruel and inhumane and ungodly, unrighteous to um, the other side just because they're the other side and you have to win this. And that's something that Homer understands really well. War, which is, I mean, I think our our own online behavior is just a different kind of war. Um, Interesting. War can denature the people who are participating in it because it's an unnatural situation of hostility and treachery and distrust and hatred it kind of changes you and makes you misunderstand, like distorts your mind and makes it harder for you to see what's really good for you. And so people in those situations, Homer understands, 
can really start wanting bad things more than they want good things. Hmm. And um, that's what happens to all of these poor guys by the end of the Trojan War. They're all distorted and and just um, doing, you know, in in hor- with horrible habits of treating pe- mistreating people. And it takes a long time to get out of it. Okay, so I think that that's we're still in that place, and we have all of these cultural bubbles where um, our young people go on social media and um, are habituated to to thinking of them in certain ways, selves in certain ways, and thinking, and, and they just get so distorted that they think that they want all these things which are utterly unnatural and unreal and won't make them happy. Um, and of course, we think about all of the the gender madness on this, mm-hmm. but I think it's also true in different ways of uh, in other parts of our lives. Like I, th- I think, as I already said, people pursue uh, kind of political domination at all costs and are utterly cruel to the mm-hmm. other side mm-hmm. um, on on both sides, and and that's a different kind of uh, you know vi- violence that we can get into without even realizing it. So I think Homer understands that and, you know, switching it over a little bit more to my own experience, child rearing and, and teaching and everything. Um, I mean, you, you guys know as well as I do, and I'm sure your listeners will as well, that when you've got kids, you just see these kids are becoming, <laughs> they're developing all of the habits right now that will make them who they are, mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of their life. I mean, to some extent, of course, you can change and grow later. But I'm looking over at the at the dinner table, and and uh, I've got my my leg. You know, we're sitting here after dinner talking, and I've got one leg crossed over the other, you know, or something in a certain way. And I've got an elbow on the table, and I look over, and one of my sons is in exactly the same posture. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how many times this has happened to me. You know, I look over, and I see this kid is either either consciously or unconsciously aping me, (laughs) (laughs) which is like a little, a little, you know, scratch cartoon version of what is happening with parenting. They're, they're becoming miniature versions of us with all of our, in in all of our good and our bad Mm -hmm. attributes. (laughs) So God help us, you know, uh, we're, we're passing on the, anyway, so, so it's just always impressed the duty of of parents and, and the vocation of parents is to is to kind of form the right kind of environment and the right kind of habits and the right ways of talking and 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 re- resolving problems and all these kinds of things because um, I'm I'm trying to shape the expectations and the habits of these people the, these young people who have been given into my charge temporarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before they go and make their lives. And I just think it's also true in a way with my college students, you know, I mean, they're given to me for a short time. They've already had their family experience. Um, of course, they're still with their families too, but you know, they're, they're moving out and they're, they're given to me for a short time too. And there, there's still change and influence um, that's, that's possible there. And um, so I, I see it as obviously I'm not their father. I'm, they're kind of in that in-between space where they're moving into adulthood and I have a kind of half 
uh, I have a, an authoritative role, obviously, that is a little fatherly, but also is moving into a more kind of older, wiser friend mode. And they, they still have a capacity for change and development and habit forming there, which is so important, um, which is this is why I love being a college professor is mm. a chance for ment- mentorship and and making a difference in people's lives. It's amazing. You're speaking and giving witness in your stories and illustrations to relationship is the heart of religion, not no religion or no ritual. It's essential, but relationship, this sense of what it means to be a human being and and to be known and to know and to interact. And I say this because I think to me, you know, you look at again, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, this reveals a great poverty. How many of us really inherited a vision of what it means in that respect of that personalist aspect? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I guess I would say, I mean, there are so many ways you could answer this, but one thing that occurs to me is, um, I think, I mean, there's an actually interesting recent history in this. Um, up until the middle of the 19th century, <clears throat> when, when uh, societies really started to urbanize, especially in the West, and, you know, you have the in- industrialization, and people are all moving into the cities uh, and leaving the farms where they used to, and the smaller towns and everything where they used to live. And that really you know, speeds up even more in the 20th century and is still happening in some ways. Before that time, families all lived and worked together more. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I'm not saying that men didn't have problems before that, <clears throat> but because families most families around the world for for most centuries uh, of human existence have had to all work together in order to make their daily bread mm. um make it happen <laughs> uh you know and you, you you didn't have this kind of um segregated life where men are out alone somewhere like like they started to be in the 19th century and mm. the 20th century men are out alone somewhere Women and children are back in the house um, doing their own thing. It's it was much more of a family, uh, an, an integrated family unit for most people by necessity for many, you know, for most centuries of human history. What we've gotten in the advanced industrialized West is more of this segregated model where women, uh, men, women, uh, men and women are more <laughs> in di- or working in different places. Uh, this is still true with, with women in the workforce, of course. And then children are either at home or they're at school. They also are kind of hived off mm-hmm. in, in their own way. So what, what I'm working around to saying is just that Fascinating. I think we've had cultural models in the past where it's been more where it's been more organically built in to have a more relational model with your father. Um, and part of the reason we had the more distant, um, like I will do things for for the family in a kind of dutiful, <laughs> dutiful way. I'll I'll meet the needs and bring home the bacon and and do this and that on the margins. That model is especially a 20th century model. Um, mm. uh, it's kind of a late modern thing. I think we do. I I totally agree, Greg, that we need to get back to a more <clears throat> relational, hands-on, like full whole person. <laughs> Uh, whole personal approach to to fathering, and I think this is one of the big kind of um, apostolic and catech- catechetical struggles that we've got uh, is how, how to 
reform the next generation of fathers, not to mention the fathers that already, you know, are are practicing it right now. How do we help help them and inspire them? I think one of the big things is just um, is just seeing other people do their <clears throat> like seeing good fathers do what they do mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of sharing our lives with other people, not in a in a kind of heavy handed, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> teacher teacherly kind of way, but just have people over and and and, and try to get to get together with people it's good good parenting is really attractive Mm -hmm. and if if obviously we're trying to to be you know parents as as well as we can and we're also trying to share our lives with other people and and um bring them alongside and um then i think it's going to grow and change but of course we also need to you know do all we can and have you know there are people who have fatherhood initiatives and things like this and i think that's and conferences and instructional things and classes mm-hmm. all that well and good but i think that of course the heart of it is going to be um from one guy to another from one family to another yes um making it attractive through practice mm-hmm. and having those conversations which naturally arise well you know how do you how do you your, how do you get your kids to behave in mass and how does you know how do you keep <laughs> your your wife or your son from getting unhappy in this situation and mm-hmm. that kind of thing which i think a lot um, so, of times those you know you mentioned the different conferences and classes and again they certainly have their places but it does come down as you said the phrase you know the heart of it definitely is you know, you're describing mentorship and friendship and community. And isn't that where our, our natural place of growth and learning is? And I think we've, and having people over, I love that you mentioned that, Dr. Lindley, mm-hmm. because we have experienced, been blessed to experience it ourselves. We've seen other people do it also, mm-hmm. not having any idea the effect that just being a family, by just being a couple together, that how the Lord uses that witness to really change other people's lives. And and there's such yeah. power in that by just being faithful to where the Lord has called us to be and being faithful, you know, to that, you know, as a woman, <laughs> daughter of God, uh-huh. as a man, man of God. But just, I, I think we underestimate the power of that, because I think too often, if I could just keep going off for a moment here, <laughs> the, you know, the the conferences and the books and the, you know, the this is and the that's that they're, they're easy, right? And I think for many of us, it's like a, a box to be checked and uh, a much harder time than integrating that experience into our everyday life where Greg spoke of as, you know, those heroic moments of the place right. in life that we're called to. Um this has been awesome. I love the you've used the word denature a few times, and I don't know why that just that keeps hitting me. And it's so true and sad, and <laughs> you know, like just we've denatured so so much of manhood, so much of womanhood. So I guess mm. just throwing in there a, a feminine perspective, um, mm. I see that women have in denaturing themselves 
have caused a denaturing <laughs> of man, if that makes any sense, um, kind of taken on an inappropriate role, trying to fill in perhaps where husbands and fathers have fallen short, even though it's not our place to. Um, I don't know if you want to comment or able to comment from a female perspective. I'm sure your wife would be very proud. Yeah. How we can, as women, um, help to bring that back in a better way. How can we encourage and support men to be men in a, in a better way? Golly, that's a huge question. Um, and I think we're still finding our footing on some of these questions. I think, um, <clears throat> I think part of what modern feminism came out of, and there, there's some actually really great Catholic um, women writing on this right now. There's a woman named Erica Bacciocci cool who, name. Just came to, who just came to Hillsdale uh, a week or two ago. And she has a, a whole book on this. Mm. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It sounds Maybe cool. Bakiochi, but... <laughs> However you say it, it's just a cool name. <laughs> but uh, but she she writes about the history of women in the last 200 years. And part, um, part of what she says, which I think is pretty compelling, is feminism, part of what it came out of is – a, a reaction which is partially understandable and and uh, but then partially an overreaction to that um, that splitting up of the family which happened in in kind of sent, um, urbanizing industrializing cultures where you had now women are at home and men do all the work and women actually don't have anything to do. Uh, well, obviously they have to take care of yes, yes. the okay. family, but <laughs> but they don't have you know, they don't have a companion for taking care of the family anymore. And they also don't have, they're not companions in the work mm-hmm. uh, that supports the family mm-hmm. in the same way. Interesting. And um, it's actually, there are some just real growing pains with uh, modern society that we're still working through. So, so feminism kind of reacts against that and wants to, you know, women need to have a place that's more like men. They were, they were actually reacting to some real thing, real problems, though, there. And there are others we can talk about, mm-hmm. too. But, um, but I think when we're thinking about what, what do, you know, how, how to heal this and bring, about, uh, bring it back to a healthier place, we need to figure out how to have families that work together and that do, the, that do life in common again. Mm-hmm. And um, where both child rearing, like Greg was saying, is something that men do like kind of can see, see themselves doing just as much as women, mm-hmm. and where women feel like they have, you know, uh, where they where they feel like they're they're fully integrated and fully important part of the whole the whole process as well. But that's kind of a big thing. I mean, how how to support men? You you asked. Um, <laughs> and uh, I feel like I don't know. I don't <laughs> we'll get your wife on the phone for that part. <laughs> I don't want to be presumptuous here, but I mean, I mean let me just say, low some low hanging fruit is just I think, and, and something that I think has really helped me in my marriage and, and and my wife too. The most important thing for husbands and wives is to foster each other's. Um, spiritual life and internal life, devotional life, and the 
the the culture of your inner life of prayer and life with God. Awesome. Um, and when I say foster, I mean just help the other person get up in the morning and have some some quiet time to mm-hmm. to set apart for this part of your life. Mm-hmm. Which is really hard, especially when you got little kids, yeah, you know, yeah. and you're so and you're dog tired at the end of the day, and you need all the sleep you can get. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but even with a big family, you can you can make time for that if it's important, and it is. Mm-hmm. And and I think that I think that husbands and wives who support each other in that, because um, women need support in this, of course, just as much as men. But if you make that investment and, and that help and uh, of each other, then it really trickles down um, to the rest of the day, the rest of the life, the rest of the vocation, and um, and you have a much better chance of flourishing and and uh, getting other things right, growing in other ways. That is a great punctuation mark on this first of what hopefully will be other programs where we can tap your wisdom and insight, because I think it does. It is the ancients. It is truth speaking to us today and forming us to be the best versions of ourselves. And I think uh, we are a people looking. We're looking for guide. We're looking for direction, especially in the wake of deconstructionism, where there's so much uh, litter and debris and people trying to ask now, well, what is the truth? Because I'm broken. I need truth and I need it in an unpoliticized uh, sort of way. I just need it because I understand that it's true. So folks, uh, mm-hmm. so blessed that you are with us on this journey, Ignite Radio Live. You can listen to our recent programs. Tune in at IgniteRadioLive.com and we do encourage you to join us on this journey. We want to be so much more than media. We want to be a movement of marriages and families, discovering the vision, having the tools and supporting each other, making our homes that place of ever-deepening encounter, discovering our identity and participation in the Trinity. Check it out. I love my family.us. Dr. Dwight, thank you so much for you and the gift of your witness and uh, all the great leadership and work that you bring to Hillsdale College. Thank you, Greg and Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. 